Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. And now, the greatest parking lot cop since I had that job. <laughs> Maybe better. Um, <laughs> Most likely. Most likely. Um, Felicia Alcoholic. Felicia. Um, can you guys hear me in the back? Okay. Uh, okay, louder? Okay. Um, man, I feel it. I got sober, I guess, just to qualify, January 3rd, 2013. Um, I share this a lot, but it was it's pretty much the meat and potatoes of my first day in AA because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I remember it was a young people's meeting. I really wanted to sit on the windowsill, but I thought that that was reserved for, like, really cool people. And then, and then I found out that I really wanted to sit on the windowsill, but I didn't. And I sat in the back row, and I introduced myself as a newcomer. And the only woman who came up after that meeting is still my sponsor for the past approaching two and a half years. So if you're hesitating on approaching anyone after a meeting... That one, like just that introduction saved my ass because unknowingly she introduced me to my home group, which I went to while I was in school um, pretty much every day, my first semester sober. Um, she was sharing at that meeting, and um, I didn't relate to the speaker. People were just like, Bleh, the whole time. But when she shared... She said that she was cutting kale in her kitchen that day, and she paused, and she said that she felt okay, and I was just like, I want that. What is that? (laughs) I want to cut kale in the kitchen. I want to pause. I want to be okay. (sighs) I've just been wanting to be okay, like, throughout my whole recovery, um... You know, like, lately I've kind of had a resentment against AA. I think that you're all special needs. I hate coming to AA, and everyone's really happy because I'm like, you guys are all on a crutch. You, like, are just, like, weird, and I hate I hate being an alcoholic because I just want everything to be so convenient. But And I still want to kill myself. But I guess, you know, people tell me the miracle is, You may want to kill yourself at points, but at least you don't want to drink. And I'm like, okay, like, what kind of, like, a miracle is that? (laughs) But I've learned through AA that this isn't going to solve everything. And I've learned how to, it's opened avenues for me to reach out for help in ways that I just didn't even know were possible. Um, You know, I started drinking when I was 12. Total, total shit show. Um, my drinking did not change. Um, got wasted, finished like a quarter of a bottle of, I, I can't remember if, it's, if it was whiskey or rum. It was, I mean, it got me trashed. Um, 
So I kind of put that aside, didn't really do anything until high school. Um, my using, I mean, when I found out that I needed to leave the Midwest, I grew up in the Midwest, that I needed to leave the Midwest um, for college. I set, every, set all of my weed smoking and all of my drinking aside, got my crap together, and decided, okay, it's either Chicago or California. So I decided to go to California to be closer with my father, who is a very alcoholic man, um, still very sick in his disease. He just can't take a step because he just lives in fear all the time. Um, so anyways, you know, college went on, my drinking and my using went off, got super hooked on pills. I had just been taught my whole life that if you don't show people that you're suffering, that you're totally okay. That was my tool that I used, is that everything is going to be okay if I just show you that I'm okay and everything is fine with me. No one knew how sinister my addiction was. No one knew that I was crying in the library bathroom, choking down pills I didn't want to choke down. Um, I don't... And so towards the end of my bottom, I was seeing six different therapists at one time because <laughs> I just had so many issues that I need. And not a single one of them knew that I was drinking the way I did or using the way I did. Um, and so one of them, I thought, I need, I just remember not knowing how to find voice to say, I think I have, I think I might have a problem. And I remember... My way of reaching out was during parties, I would say, hey, listen, like, do you think you can get addicted to these pills? Because secretly, like, inside, I was like, I think I'm addicted. And people would be like, oh, no, no, you can't get addicted to that. And I'd be like, okay, like, I'm fine. Woo! But then what's really going on? Like, what's going on? Why can't I stop? Um, and so I decided to talk to my psychiatrist with the most degrees. He had an MD, PhD. I was like, this is legit. He might know what's going on. And so I said, listen. This is, you know, I sat with him for two hours, including an email interview, and he went over, you know, just how I used, when I used, how I drank, my feelings, and um, he proposed that he had a solution. It, um, he said, it's, it's not going to hurt you. And it's funny, because before I met with him, he said, I have a, what did he say? He said, I have a 12-week program. I have a, like, we're going to work when I see you in person. And I remember telling my friends, this guy is going to get my life together in 12 weeks, guys. Like, 12 weeks. And, um, saw him, and what he had actually said was 12 step. <laughs> and so he said, I propose that you go to AA. You are an addict. You are an alcoholic. And I thought, I have nothing else. I've done yoga. I hated yoga. I was doing yoga twice a day. God, like, you know, I would go on these benders. Like, It just, everything to take care of myself, and it wasn't working. I was cutting people out of my life. That wasn't working. Um, and I just knew that there was something greater than me going on. And um, I walked in, you know, three hours later after seeing him, and um, I started to hear people wanting to kill themselves. People laughed when I shared that, and people hugged me, and I cried, and um, and I kept coming back because I didn't know what was possible, and I didn't know what I wanted. Um, I didn't know what powerlessness looked like. I just did everything that I was told. I'm not an honest person by nature. Oh, my God, I will lie about anything. I will lie about making challah bread when I'm not even Jewish just to impress a Jewish guy. Um, 
<laughs> and I was so relentlessly scared my first year that um, my sponsor suggested, she said, never go into your head alone. Bring someone with you, bring a flashlight, and bring a sandwich. And I swear to God, if I'm not making meetings, that's the one tool that I've been holding on to is, like, if I'm going to be off my meditation and all that, like, the whole, you know, game, like, the least that I can do is drag someone in with me. And um, thank God, you know, thank God for the people in AA. Thank God for all of you with special needs because I'm sure as hell special needs. And... um you know, I had a friend, I was, I had dinner with before this meeting and he said, um, he asked me, you know, like, do you ever think about what if you weren't drinking through college? Do you think like picking up the pieces right now would be different? I just, it was so good to hear that question because I wouldn't have changed a thing. Like I'm grateful for where my drinking and my using took me. I'm not going to say everything's perfect. I still want to kill myself, but, um, if you're new, don't be scared <laughs> because it's just I have nothing else. And um, AA is just what you get through working the steps one-on-one -on -one with someone, the relationships that you build. You can hear people talk and talk, but... um. It's just where my drinking and my drugging, like that was, there was just like this Felicia sized hole walking around the earth with drugs and pills and like anger. And now I'm slowly seeing that hole be filled with something so much greater. And, you know, I have issues. I'll end soon. Um, I have issues. I still have issues being on time. It's the most, it's, the most ridiculous thing, you know, I, like, going to, like, a top-tier university at, like, 16, 17, you know, graduating on time through her using, I don't know how to be on time. And fundamentally, I believe that I do not exist as a person in this world. I believe that I don't really exist in a world where I deserve to, like, show up on time or participate. And thank God for AA, because it's just something much deeper than I knew. I didn't even know that I existed. And, um, you know, through that, my ninth step has helped me a lot and it's, and it's, you know, I'm on the ninth step again and it's, um, it's amazing. It's been amazing to see the impact that I have on people through these amends because they think, wow, you really hurt me. And I think, wow, I have an impact on people or, oh my God, I love you so much. I can't believe you were going through that, but just just the freedom that has come, I don't know. Um, I'm sticking around. I'm being held accountable. And, um, you know, I'm showing up. And uh, that's all I have. Thanks. <laughs> Now I'm going to introduce Bill, who's going to uh, share for as much or as little as he'd like until 8.55. Okay? Hi. I probably want you to stand. They're going to want me to stand. They always said I could sit. 
So I'll stand. I'll stand for 20 minutes and sit for 20 minutes. Yeah, I don't want people to Hi, I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. It's uh, nice to be here, and welcome to the people who are new. Um, I want to thank Alita for asking me to do this. She didn't tell me it was going to be for 40 minutes until after I said yes. But, you know, I'm kind of grateful that that's the way it worked out, because I don't know if I would have said yes having known that. I'm uh, one of those people who needs to be either conned or cajoled. Just stepping out of his comfort zone. And she did that for me. So thank you, Alita. And I am also the chi- an adult child of Midwestern parents. And, uh, it's one of the reasons I'm here. But uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I first want to say that uh, you know, people often get up here and say that they don't speak for AA. And I don't speak for AA in a certain regard, but those of us who live this program, not only carry the message, we are the message. So all of us speak for AA in a certain regard. You know, and I think part of our, part of my responsibility for having been around here for a while is to let the newcomer know that not only can you live life with alcohol, without alcohol, you can live life and enjoy it without alcohol. You know, and that was something I could not believe when I was drinking reason. <clears throat> I did not believe that I could either live or enjoy life without alcohol. And so, um, and now I do. I am a late bloomer compared to a lot of people I hear. I didn't start drinking until I headed off to college. And that was um, a long time ago. I grew up in Gary, Indiana. And I kind of, um, you know, I... My family wasn't that different than the other families on the block. You know, all of our parents were parents, were children of the Depression, and that had a tremendous impact on them. So over the years, I've become much more forgiving of mom and dad, you know, but it's taken a long, long time. And I was extremely anxious as a child. And I think one of the reasons for that was that I just felt like the other kids didn't like me, you know. And because I felt that, it made me feel like I needed to do more in order to feel equal. And, um, and that was a hard way to live, you know. And I think it also led to my character defect of um, one-upsmanship, which I still work on getting removed to this day. Um, but I didn't drink in high school. I was fortunate in the sense that my two sisters and I were pretty bright kids. So I always got good grades, you know, and, that was kind of like the sole aim of childhood in the Midwest in the 50s and 60s was to get good grades. You know, it enabled me to pass for normal, and I desperately wanted to pass for normal. And in fact, I still desperately want to pass for normal. But here, and working this program, I actually get to be normal. You know, so that's, that's a nice feeling. Uh, so I did drink once in high school. I did it with three friends of mine. We were buddies, and... It was kind of the rite of passage drinking that almost every high school kid does. We went out and somehow managed to each get a half pint of orange-flavored vodka and hung out in somebody's garage and drank it and smoked cigarettes. And I even got in trouble that night. That was an indicator because we ran out of cigarettes and we were going to a gas station that was two blocks away to get cigarettes. And at 11.01... One minute after curfew, 
a cop car pulled over and picked us up and said we were out after curfew. And he went and took us home to our parents, you know. <laughs> that was kind of like um, a precursor of what was going to come. So, but overall, you know, other than being anxious, I did well in high school, got accepted into college, and, you know, all held regulates in my life. It was a, I felt so socially inept and inadequate and unprepared for the non-academic element of college that I couldn't handle it. And I found alcohol right away. And it it wasn't the magic elixir that a lot of people talk about. Um, and I'm kind of sometimes envious of those people that they had this <coughs> fantastic experience with their first drink and their next many drinks and things. For me, it was like air. I needed two things to get through life, air and alcohol. And for some reason, alcohol was easily available to an 18-year-old at the school I went to, which kind of helped save my life because I needed it. And within six months, I was drinking a quart of whiskey a day. And I had an inclination that that was probably not the way people normally drink, you know. And, uh, but I couldn't do otherwise. I felt a little bit ashamed of it. I remember that I would wake up in the morning. I'd make sure I woke up before my roommate. And I had the top bunk. And I would slowly open my locker and pull out my quart of whiskey and have a drink before he woke up so I could get going. And it turned out that it was the whiskey that decided whether or not I stayed in my room and drank all day or went to class. You know? Once I took that first drink, I surrendered all decision-making to alcohol. And, and that's how my life went in college. I, I remember one time my roommate said to me, because he kind of was getting kicked off by my drinking, he said uh, that, he said, Bill, I know you're smarter than me, but I would hate it if you, if you ever got better grades. You know, I thought he meant that as a compliment, but, you know, it probably wasn't. But it was just an indication of what a screw-up I was. And, and a year later, I remember being in my dorm, and the phone rang, and somebody asked me to come on over. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon. And they were playing this game called Whale's Tales that we used to play in college. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, but it was one of those games where you ask, you answer a question, and if you get it wrong, you take a swig of beer. Well, I didn't happen to have any beer in my room, but I had these two quarts of pre-mixed whiskey sours. So that was one of my favorite drinks. And, uh, so I grab a quart of the whiskey sours. I go to the hall where this guy lived and started playing the game. And 15 minutes later, the whole bottle's gone. And I get up and I says, I'm going to go get my other quart. And the next thing I knew, it was 12 hours later, uh, on my back, in my room, on the bed. The room is destroyed. Well, not destroyed, but the bookcase is kind of knocked over, the bookcase that we had. And my roommate is staring down at me, the same guy, with a complete look of disgust on his face. And, you know, and I kind of shrugged it off like I always shrugged it off. And then I got up the next morning and went to class, I think, and 
And a, a day later, the prefect on the floor came up to me and he said, Hi, Bill. I, I brought a friend. I had a friend visiting from St. Louis the other night and brought him over to meet you. And I had absolutely no recollection of this. And so I thought, and I says, Oh, why did you do that? And he said, because I had never seen anybody so drunk in my entire life. And if your drinking stands out at the University of Notre Dame on St. Patrick's Day, you shouldn't drink. It's, it's a big indicator. But I continued to drink for another 10 years because I was just so afraid of living my life without liquor. Um, I just couldn't imagine doing it. So I eventually flunked out of college the second semester of my junior year, I only played bridge and drank. And so I didn't go to a single class. And about two weeks into school, and, and before finals, I realized I'm probably not going to make it. You know, so I went, and it was the day my mom was coming to pick me up, and I left a note saying, Dear Mom, I've decided to be by myself for a while. And, uh, which was a cool thing to do, but it was all I could think to do. And I walked down to the uh, dormitory's mailboxes, and because with classes ending, they no longer stuck the mail in everybody's individual mailbox. It just had this big box with a bunch of mail in it, and people were supposed to go through it and pick out what was for them. So I just grabbed a big stack of mail, and went back to my room, started opening it up because I figured people would be sending graduation money to the people who were graduating. So I got about $80 doing that. And I thought, That's enough. Went. This was 1970. I, I, $80 was a lot of money back in 1970. So I have the clothes on my back and $80, and I decided to go. I'm going to go work on a friend of mine's grandmother's farm in Iowa. And he didn't know I was going to do this, and she had never heard of me. But I headed up towards her place. I get there. It's a Saturday night, and I knock on her door. I got her address from him somehow. And there was no answer. So I went to the neighbors, and I knocked on their door, and they said, oh, She's out of town. She won't be back until Monday. So this was a little bit of a dilemma. <laughs> so I had to figure out, well, what do I do from here? And so um, I thought, well, I'll go visit my aunt in San Francisco. <laughs> so I stick out my thumb, and I get a few rides, and eventually I get a ride. It's at 1 o'clock in the morning. The guys this was from a truck driver. We're heading into Lincoln, Nebraska, and he asked me the, if uh, I just wanted to go into town because he's never going to get a, another ride tonight. And I said, "No, I'll keep trying." I thought it would like sleep in the fields. It was if I didn't get picked up. So, just a few minutes later, these three people in a Corvair pulled up, and they said, "Where are you going?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to San Francisco." And they said, hop in, we're going to Berkeley. So I got a ride all the way to Berkeley with these three people. Which, you know, was God looking out for me, you know, because I don't know what I would have done if they hadn't picked me up. So we get here, 
And for some reason, I had always thought Berkeley was by Los Angeles. <laughs> I here, I'm like, wow, I'm like 11 miles from my aunt. So we got an apartment together. We got, we got jobs with the Census Bureau counting people. We would go door to door and count people. This was 1970, pre-personal computer, internet, slash, slash, slash. Uh, and that's what I did for a few months to get by. But, but that didn't last forever. You know, I did. I wanted to add something else to the way I felt as a kid, which was that uh, I had just tremendous fear of fate. Anytime I failed something, I wouldn't try it again. You know, and that that comes up repeatedly in my story, in my life during that period. And one of the things I failed to do when I was in high school was I failed my driver's license exam the first time, and I didn't take it again until I came out here. You know, and the only reason I did it then was because I was going with this woman who was nearly blind. She bought me a car, which was kind of nice. But we didn't stay together that long, and I didn't have the car that long. But it was a nice car. It was a Dodge Dart. And then I didn't drive again pretty much for the next 25 years, 20 years maybe. I actually became a full-fledged driver when I was 54, which was... 2003. But that's how it was. If I failed at something, I was not going to try it again. The shame was just too much. So getting back to getting into Berkeley, we did that thing. We stayed together, the three people and I. And But now I didn't have any employment, so I didn't really have a way to pay my rent. So I would go to each of the people and Say, oh, why don't you give me your share of the rent? I'll take it down to the landlord. And I would go and pay two-thirds of the rent one month, and they would accept it. Then the next month, I would do two-thirds of the rent. They accepted it. It didn't work the third time, and so they kind of came and knocked on the door. My roommates are thinking, I thought we were paying the rent. <coughs> well, they were paying their rent. I just wasn't paying mine. So we went our separate ways, and... <laughs> and I ended up working with people in wheelchairs for throughout the 70s. I got a job as a living attendant, which is a perfect job for an alcoholic of my type because you never have to leave the house. You know, so I lived in and I really did. Plus, they give people in wheelchairs Valium like it's candy. <laughs> and I kind of like got into Valium while during that period. I did Valium on a really regular basis from 1970 to 1980, only having a prescription once that lasted about a month. But the people in wheelchairs were glad to give it out, so I was glad to accept it. I liked pills, too. Uh, so I also remember, I kind of, in 1972, I became the first bookkeeper for the Center for Independent Living. And... I was glad I was able to do that. It was an interesting job. And it became a world-famous organization, actually. And there were only like 12 employees at the start, and I was one of them. But I used to go to work with two six-packs of beer and drink those two six-packs throughout the day. And I was reflecting on this the other day that most people don't get to go to work with two six-packs of beer in the morning and drink them throughout the day. You know, and, and that is a strange way to live. <clears throat> but I just had to have my alcohol. 
And another incident that occurred that really stands out for me was I was living with this woman. Uh, I lived with her for a couple of years. She was a really nice person. And I'm one of those, I often puked when I drank, <laughs> but I hated being dizzy and I did always puke. And sometimes when I would get dizzy, I would make myself puke, thinking that would help me not be dizzy. It didn't work, but I kept doing it. Um, so one day I'm reading an article in a magazine and it says that if you drink Epsom salts, they will make you throw up. And I thought, problem solved. So I went out and bought a bag of five Epsom salts. And every time that I drank so much that I got dizzy, I would just take some Epsom salts, put them in the glass, and drink them and throw up. And it worked. And I looked a few weeks into that, the woman I'm living with comes in and sees me doing it. And she says, what are you doing? And I says, I'm drinking Epsom salts, so I'll throw up. And she says, well, of course you throw up. They're poison. <laughs> yeah, that kind of makes sense. So it did stop. You know, I'm not insane, so I just stopped taking the Epsom salts. You know, and I continued to poison myself for another nine years because I had to keep drinking. There was no way I could not do it. And so it just plodded along. You know, and my drinking, I mean, I was... They talk about the, the shark in Jaws being an eating machine. And I was a drinking and drugging machine. You know, that's what I did throughout the 70s. It's what I had to do. And it's maybe 20 funny stories and 300, 3,500 depressing days. And so that was the 70s for me. How I ended up in AA was a lot of ways, actually. I got involved. Oh, I also remember I, I got arrested for failure to report for induction in, in 1973, I believe it was. And it's not like I was avoiding induction. I just failed to report for it because I was incapable of reporting for it. You know, it was just I couldn't get it together enough to go. And I doubt if they would have taken me anyway. So they take me down to the Army base, and they give me the physical, and they take my blood pressure, and it was 188 over 98. And that'll get you out of the Army. <laughs> I, was, I was not working on having a hot blood pressure, and this was before I started using cocaine. <laughs> but that was my blood pressure. So... That, that kind of spared me that. And so, but that's just how it was in the 70s. I just kind of, I had to drink. And finally, I, the last person that I did live in attendant work for was a guy named Paul. And he had a very severe neck injury. He drove his wheelchair with his chin. And when he got his injury, they told him he was only, only had three years to live. And he ended up living like 14 years after that. But he also got a $250,000 settlement. And he decided, well, since I only have three years to live, I'm going to do a lot of cocaine. You know? And he did a lot of cocaine. And he turned his friends onto a lot of cocaine. Fortunately, I met him probably seven or eight years into it. 
because if I'd have met him right on the, at the beginning, I don't know if I'd be here. Uh, so, but I moved in there in 1980, I think it was. And the second day I'm living there, we're watching the television in the living room. And it's about six o'clock at night, and I drank about a quart of vodka, and I probably took about six to ten ampicillin, because he had ampicillin, and it was a pill. And I thought, if people have pills, you take them. You know, so I took them, and we're watching the TV, and the vertical hold went out, and he said, well, why don't you go upstairs and get my shotgun? And I said, okay. So I go upstairs and get the shotgun. I come downstairs with it. He said, well, shoot the TV. Now, I have never shot a gun in my entire life. And I take the gun, I point it at the TV, and I pull the trigger. And I'm like, wow, I like death. And there's smoke all over the place. And it's like this Remington 9mm mine something. There. So we look at the TV, and it was still playing. <laughs> so he said, shoot it again. And I got it the second time. <laughs> I remember remarking to somebody once that um, I caught, if the police had come, I probably, I could have gone to jail. And he looked at me and he said, if the police had come, you were going to jail. <laughs> that kind of makes sense in retrospect because they, they allowed people to do a lot in Berkeley in the 70s, but they wouldn't allow that, I don't think. So, again, that was God looking out for me. And I don't know how I survived it all. But I also remember a few days after that, waking up about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, just with this feeling that I had always had this Pollyanna outlook on life. I just felt like I would meet the right woman. I would get the right job. I would inherit a million dollars. Whatever. I would come into a something would work out that I didn't have to put any effort into getting. And you know, I woke up that afternoon and I realized, Bill, every single thing, every single day from now on is going to be exactly the same as the previous day, which was this gray, bleak, dreary day of looking for drugs, looking for alcohol, mooching off people, conning people, making promises I know I couldn't keep. And it was that day of pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization that they talk about in the big book. Because I saw no hope. I had no idea that there was another way to live, for me. And this was in November, and I drank for another few months. I didn't really have much knowledge of AA. And then one night, I went to a party. It was for a friend of mine. And I'll tell one more story quickly, which was, again, I felt that I had to drink. I went to bed one night, and I woke up the next morning, and there was this big glass of whiskey by the side of the bed, and I picked it up, and I just downed it. And like I said, I don't like to be dizzy, but I got dizzy, so I went in the shower, I turned on a hot shower, thinking that'll work. Another thing that had never worked before, but I'm sure it was going to work this time. <laughs> I get in the shower, and an hour and after about a minute and a half, I fall out of the shower onto the floor. I get up, I look in the mirror, and there's this plastic disposable razor blade 
sticking out of the side of my face, about an inch from my eye. And I looked at that, and I took it out, and thought about it. And the next day, I went to the drugstore and one, bought one of those Gillette regular razors, because the plastic ones were unecological. <laughs> that was the problem, that I was screwing with the ecology. You know, because whatever it was, I had to convince myself that it was okay to continue drinking. So that's my last drinking story. So I go to this party. I buy a quart, I take a quart of whiskey. It's somebody's birthday. It's one of the drug dealers that I know. And one of the, another, the other drug dealer that I mostly dealt with, I owed him $10,000 at the time. And he said he didn't like being around me when I was drinking. And that made me really uncomfortable because I was always drinking. And I was going with this woman. And she said to me that she wanted to break it off. And we were, it was one of those great, you know, sex, drugs, and sex, and drugs, and sex, and drugs relationships. And I says, well, why do you want to do that? She goes, because I'm afraid you might hurt me sometime. And I had no idea what she meant by that because I had never laid a finger on her. So I asked her what she meant. She says, well, your behavior is so unpredictable from one moment to the next that you're going to have to, uh, that I'm afraid you might hurt me sometime. And that really was difficult to hear. Okay, nine minutes. I had a but, uh, so I went to a party. I drank the quart that I took, came home, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I knew it was time. It was, I was beaten. I was really beaten. So I called and Back then, they didn't have an answering service. They had, a, they didn't have the diverter. They had an answering service, and I picked up the phone. It was actually a speakerphone because the person with the wheelchair couldn't dial. He had to click this thing. So I tell the operator to call AA, and she called AA, and she said, "Well," and I said, "Well, Bill, and I'm having a problem with drinking. I don't know what I said," and she said. Well, could you call us back tomorrow morning because I can't understand a word you're saying? And it was the perfect thing to say. I got up the next morning saying, I'll show you. I will call you back. <laughs> you know, and I called them back and I went to it, the meeting, and it was fabulous. I really enjoyed it. The girlfriend of the drug dealer, actually, that I owed all the money to, gave me a ride, brought me back. <laughs> but I didn't know what to do after that. So I drank again a few days later. And I bumped into my girlfriend, and she said, how'd it go? And I says, well, it didn't go that well. But it turned out, you know, she said, well, why don't you try again? And that's when I had my spiritual <coughs> It was when I became willing to try again. Because I'd always been so afraid of failure, I would never try again. And this time I did try again. And I had to try again another 30 times that first year. But I went to five meetings a week, every single day, every single week. And... Eventually, it paid off. It paid off from the beginning, to be quite honest. But in February 22nd, 1982, I had my last drink. And that's by the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my willingness to ask for help, you know, to rely on you people to save my life because you've done that. And I'm really grateful for that. And I tend to work AA light. You know, I just kind of... Uh, I'm not one of those deeply spiritual people or anything, but somebody once said that if you want to do something, habit is a good way to go about it. 
and I've really developed the habits that I've needed to stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I continue to go to four meetings a week, compiler by water. I work with newcomers. I have three sponsees. I, I write out the first three steps every day. It kind of brings me into the program. <coughs> and I've done the fourth and fifth steps. My first fourth step was write down four things about yourself that you don't want anybody to know. And I did have four things about myself that I really didn't want anybody to know. But I told them to somebody. And I can only remember one of those things now. I don't even remember what the other three were. But you're not going to get to hear that. <laughs> and I really like the sixth and seventh step. I chaired a meeting recently and I said that I think my biggest character defect is thinking that I can remove my character defects. And that's pride. And I, I just can't. If I could, I would. So a big part of my recovery nowadays is just making peace with my character defects. God's going to remove them or God is not. And I don't have to drive myself crazy trying to get rid of them. And that's a blessing. And, and I think the steps do work. And I'm also a big fan of the book. I think that uh, there's a lot in there. My favorite passage is that part in page 45 where it says, Lack of power, that is our dilemma. We had to find a power greater than ourselves. And, well, no, we had to find a power greater than ourselves. And they said, that is the main purpose of this book, to help you to find that power that will solve your problem. And I think if we do these things that this says to do in that book, we do get our problems solved. And, and that's a blessing. It's not always great, but, you know, I went to the doctor the other day, and they took my blood pressure, and it was 111 over 67. So that worked. And, and, you know, I'm grateful for that. And in 2005, I got cajoled into going to the uh, World Services Convention. Like I said, I'm going to stay home unless I get conned or cajoled into doing something. And I had a great time. So I went in 2010, and I'm going July 1st to the one in Atlanta. And if you ever get a chance to go to one of those, they're really a lot of fun. It's, it's amazing. And they're very informative. I, I really never thought I would do, be able to do that kind of stuff. You know, this program has given me a life. And at the time I got here, any life was a life beyond my wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. So, and this one is a pretty good one. So I keep showing up and... I'm thinking, this is a little bit of a hard time of the year for me because I work at the university and I walk through the campus and there's been all these graduation ceremonies, you know, and <clears throat> kids walking around with their beaming parents and stuff. And I feel bad sometimes because I never finished college. But one of the things that I'm really kind of grateful for is that my feelings change, you know, because I actually feel sadder for my parents for not giving them the, for not being able to give them the opportunity to be those beaming parents. But I'm going to be retiring in a year and a half to two and a half years. And there's nothing to say that I can't finish college now, you know, and somewhere they'll be beaming, you know. So thank you all very much and take care.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.